quick background for today. Uh, Kevin is actually outside with some some cute little birdies because it's such a nice day out. So you can hear the birdies in the background, which ties right in with our regenerative landscapes. Um, today we're going to tackle pollinators and specifically the pollinator plants because it's such a large topic. Uh, we'll get into the pollinators, primarily the insects and maybe some of the birds and things the next episode and then follow that up with uh, habitats, like how to create your own habitats, whether you're in your yard or whether you're rural and uh, what pollinators and plants need for their habitats. But um, to start with, we'll do the usual. What were you guys up to the last uh, week or so? Kevin. <laughs> he goes to Kevin first. Me? Okay. Um, well, you're the only Kevin here. <laughs> I thought there's another Kevin here. <laughs> Not really much. It was very nice the last week. So I was just taking the kid to the playground a lot and meeting new people. I don't know, just talking to other kids at the playground because she's never seen other kids. Because really? COVID happened last oh, year. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because of COVID, right she went time. to daycare for a little bit and then daycare got shut down. So she was Back just at home. home by herself for, yeah, a year. Oh no, more than a year now, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she's excited to see some kids. But yeah, that's pretty wow. much what I did. And oh, yeah. And just, yeah, like talking to Dan about the projects and all those stuff because it's like anxious. For me, mm -hmm. that's important stuff, you know. Okay, Dan, your turn. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, not up to, didn't get up to too much. Um, yeah, my birthday was last week and it didn't feel like it because it was just <laughs> another year of, <laughs> within a pandemic, uh, my birthday mm -hmm. fell in. So it was just a lot of, I mean, I had a nice little thing with my family and some friends well, that's, that's online. Good. So we'll have to yeah, do it like do a, a little bit of something, something, something out in the woods for both of you guys. Cause Kevin's birthday wasn't too long ago either or something. And just like what, you know, I'll, I'll throw tea bags at you or, or something, you know? <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, you can let's just do it. nicely put them down and I'll just grab them. We can do it. We'll do a doorbell ditch <laughs> drop for you. Bing bong. <laughs> drop a flaming bag of dog poop on your porch. No. Yeah, um, <laughs> No, no, we got all kinds of other cool things that we could do. But uh, yeah, we'll have to do something, socially distance something or other. Um, yeah, so did cool. that. Um, just been doing more yard work, kind of prepping and waiting on. I ordered some different native plants and seeds to try out this year. So waiting on those to come in and then kind of going to start planting those. And hopefully those will do well this season. Uh, what else? What? Yeah, not really too much. Again, yeah, like Kevin was saying, uh, we're starting to ramp up our um, season, and yeah, we have some a few projects that are uh, in the pipeline. So we're hoping that yeah, all those will come through, and yeah, just keep this business going for the season. Cool. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah, over here. So we've got our like I was saying, our new. Uh, Little, I call it a cold house because it's not really a greenhouse. It's kind of meant to harden off plants to get them ready for the great outdoors and just protect them from the crazy fluctuations we have. Uh, starting to tidy up our garden as well. Um, actually had all the cats outside because it's finally warm enough. And there's birds everywhere. We might even have a woodpecker moving into our back birch tree, making a nest. And uh, 
crazy with the plants, crazy with the the projects and things coming on. And and pretty soon it'll be uh, deliveries. I've got a bunch of deliveries to do as soon as this weather gets consistent. And uh, be interesting to see how all that goes and do some uh, promos because hey, I'm still waiting for that stupid insurance to come through. How how are you doing with your guys's insurance? <laughs> uh, still slow. <laughs> yeah, like it's just. I mean, they use the the pandemic as an excuse, I think. But I'm like, mm, I don't think that really has anything to do with it, because everything's done online or remote or whatever, anyway, for the most part. So, but uh, but yeah, as soon as I get that insurance, then I can do, um, you know, the the vendor stands and do these nature hike things and stuff that it doesn't really matter whether COVID's going on or not, right? But in the meantime, here we are. Anyway, cool, cool. So I guess we'll just uh, get this pollinator party started, hey? So I guess my first question is, why is pollination even a thing? Why is it important? Uh, How about we start with Dan this time and you give us your thoughts on that? So you're asking why pollination is important? Yeah. The question? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for pollinators itself, like they're, I mean, it's their how they get their food, right? Like pollen is, like there's pollen and nectar, and the pollen side of it is like the protein that uh, whatever pollinators um, are kind of flying around, what they go to eat, but then also at the same time, it is um, what helps on the plant side of it. Uh, and kind of ecosystem as a whole helps with um, uh, helping produce seeds by other plants with, you know, cross pollination and whatnot with other plants. And yeah, these pollinators help to kind of carry the pollen over from plant to plant and do that cross pollination. And that leads to, yeah, being able to produce seeds and uh, builds up genetic diversity, uh, resilience. Yeah. All these other factors, but mm-hmm. yeah. And Kevin, what say you? All right. For me, it's always about food. So I actually had yeah. a story to tell. Uh, cool. Back home, What's I had relatives. <laughs> yeah, I, I had relatives that's uh, living in the countryside. And they, um, what do they do? They plant peach trees and they sell peaches. Mm-hmm. So cool. every year, there's not enough pollinators to pollinate the peach trees. So what they had to do is that they had to go around, use chopsticks to stick into the flower of each tree and then like go to another one and just do that manually they have to hire people to do it so they can have peach so that's why i know like pollinators it's super important yeah big time um actually it's funny that you mentioned that uh steve and i just came back from a trip up in grand prairie why did we go there you might ask well it actually is a really cool area for plants and everything but we were going to get a a side by side um but there was a place up there it's a kind of a homestead outdoorsy type of shop and i found a really cool book on pollinators and ironically in it it says about i think 70 at least 70 percent of the world's food crops are pollinated by by pollinator animals so like whether it's birds or insects that kind of thing and um in areas like what kevin's saying they were they were actually using the apple orchards in china as an example saying that um, there weren't enough pollinators so they had to use paintbrushes and go around and and basically paint all the apple blossoms to spread the the pollen around and i'm just like holy smokes could you imagine 
how long that would take with all those flowers and everything. So yeah, the pollinators are definitely valuable for that reason. Um, actually, if you cut open an apple and you look inside, there's that kind of star shape and all this, the, there's seeds in there. Um, so there should be, think about f at least five seeds in, uh, mm -hmm. in each of those pockets. And the fewer the pollinators that get to those flowers, the fewer those pockets of seeds you'll find. So an apple can still be produced from a partially pollinated flower, but it won't be as big and it will lack all those seed pockets. And I hadn't even thought of that before, but I'm sitting there going, oh, so if you want not just your fruit or vegetables, or whatever, but good fruit or vegetable sets so that you've got nice, big, juicy fruit or vegetables and lots of it, you definitely need those pollinators. So really important for that. And like Dan said, yes, important because the two, everything goes hand in hand. Without the pollinator plants, you don't have the, the pollinators. Without the pollinators, you don't have the pollinator plants. Um, you need that to complete that whole cycle for the producing the seed, producing the, the food, um, and then to have it come back so that more plants regenerate for those pollinators again. Um, so yeah, it's, it's crazy, crazy important. And the fact that we have more pollution, more cityscaping and development going on and all these different things happening, the, the spraying, the crops, all that kind of thing. Um, it's really reducing the number of pollinators. So we have to do things to ch change things up so we can get them to, to come back. Um, so that brings me to my next point, which Dan kind of touched on, biodiversity. So to get the most out of your pollinator plants and your pollinators, biodiversity is key. So my example, because a lot of people, it's, they're actually not the biggest pollinators around here, but people love them because they're so cute and pretty and whatever, hummingbirds. So if you like hummingbirds, you can't expect them to thrive on one kind of plant because that plant would only bloom during a certain period. It would only produce so much nectar, blah, blah, blah. So either the hummingbirds would have to move on or they would starve to death, right? But by producing a whole bunch of different pollinator plants that still tie in to the hummingbirds' um, needs, you're now encouraging them to stick around. Um, they, at different times, hummingbirds require insects for protein, like when they're nesting and that kind of thing. So they actually will eat a certain amount of insect material. Well, you need plants that encourage the insects to move in as well for that. Um, they also need water sources. They need nesting habitats, uh, protection against predators. So when you start to think of this whole picture, now you start to see that you need a whole bunch of different plants, not just that one plant, just for the one species to be supported. So just imagine if you're trying to get more of an ecosystem going, like there's going to be hundreds of different kinds of pollinators. And so therefore you're actually looking at getting thousands or tens of thousands of different kinds of plants. Now I realize somebody's yard is not the same as some big landscape, but if everybody does a little bit, again, it can create these corridors in these areas so that these pollinators can stick around and thrive and repopulate um, within those areas as well. Um, yeah, the big thing with that, sorry, yeah, no, uh, no, I just was going to say, yeah, the big thing with that is, yeah, time and patience on the human side of it when you're mm -hmm. when you're getting into the planning and designing and wanting to throw your plants in. Because, yeah, like you were saying how. Yeah, it's not going to be a quick thing to, I want these hummingbirds uh, in my yard now. 
Um, <laughs> it's it's never, it's never going to be that quick. No, I mean um, you can put a hummingbird feeder out, but they're like you say they're you're going to see them and they're gone. They're not going to stay, right? So no, and the idea is yeah, treat it more as kind of a layover, mm-hmm. maybe if you want to think of it that way. Like they're all they kind of just stop there for a bit for feeding and you know hanging out for a bit, and then they move on to the next thing. And if you Transient. do have enough space and you know by the odd chance there might be some pollinators that stick around for a longer time but for the most part it is kind of just a layover or stopover uh to the next site and if you have enough people within uh you know an urban setting or whatever within their yards where you have these kind of pockets of uh pollinator gardens or just you know native plant areas uh that kind of promote you know pollinators to come in um it just benefits all pollinators in general because they have enough food sources and chances are there's going to be enough variation to with these different uh, pockets of uh, pollinator gardens to uh, attract a lot of different pollinators. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you'd also be surprised at um, how little uh, can do so much because one of our smallest pollinators is a little tiny bee and uh, that particular species, because it's so small, like it only goes 50 feet or so from its nesting site. Like it never travels farther than that. So if, if you can provide enough food and habitat in that one area, you could support that one species of bee. Now, granted, the bigger you go, like uh, when you get into honeybees and, and birds and things like that, they travel a lot farther. But it is interesting to note that something that small could pretty much live in somebody's backyard if you had the food there for it and the habitat and everything. So uh, just mm-hmm. something to think about. Um, also again, along with the biodiversity, there's, there's other reasons for the biodiversity as well. Um, the different, uh, pollinators have different methods of getting the nectar and the pollen from these plants. So you've got short tongued and long tongued, uh, bees and wasps and butterflies. So if you had tubular flowers for long tongued creatures, well, now your short-tongued ones don't have anything and they'd still go hungry. So to have a variety of the different flower types for those is also important. And same things with the heights of the plants. Some prefer shorter plants, some prefer taller. Um, of course, with your... Mo- most of the pollinator uh, animals will like heat. So if, if you're doing more sunny, um, open area species, but there are always those exceptions that do the shady areas as well. Like we've got our, our violets and things like that. They still need to be pollinated too, right? So again, just whatever you're doing, try variety, variety, variety. And even if you've got a smaller area, um, try to plant as many different things in, in your planters or wherever, whatever you've got as you can. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can still make it look nice. It doesn't have to be messy. I mean, th- there are some... Um reasons for why you'd make maybe want to make it messy like you know some insects that um especially like over well maybe not overwintering but um you know if you want to keep a little bit of a kind of like leaf cover or like uh, mm-hmm. kind of mud sort of like on the ground so that some pollinators or insects can um propagate um i don't know there's a better word for that but yeah well they're, they're uh, they need their nesting sites and they they also need certain vitamins and minerals in order for them to produce their eggs or, or, you know, whatever they're, they're doing their future generations. Right. So. And then kind of something that you don't, well, I wouldn't say off, uh, 
yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> mention this often, but yeah, if you're specifically looking for, um, you know, a pollinator garden and to attract pollinators in some cases too, like some bees, I think, well, really some whatever pollinators, whether it's a bee or not, um, prefer a bare ground for their nesting. So yes. you know, that's something where <laughs> sometimes I'm like, for the most part, when I want to design a native garden bed, usually I want to try to get as much cover as possible. So we keep out uh, weedy species. But on the other hand, sometimes it's beneficial for some other species like pollinators that prefer the bare ground to uh, grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds. And and we'll get into all that kind of thing in our uh, our pollinator podcast uh because there's so many different kinds of pollinators but that's true like there's there's all these it's all these little details to think about and you'll never cover it all so so don't be banging your head against the wall going oh man i forgot this and now i don't know if this is going to work like basically any attempt you're making at doing something like this is good forward progress is good and it's going to be like uh dan said an ongoing thing so just think of it in, in stages so whatever you've you've done this season or next season it's it's going to be continual adding and tweaking and developing thing um until you're you're at a point where you really start to notice it regenerating itself and and things start to happen on their own and more creatures are moving in and plants are repopulating on their own and all, all these kind of cool things um but yeah uh the other thing is extending your season so obviously in alberta and across canada pretty much um time is fleeting during the summer months where these critters can collect their pollen and their nectar uh because there's so many more months of the cold dreary winter right where they're either hibernating or they die off or they've got their eggs laying in wait to hatch the next season uh so whatever we can do to extend their their feeding season is helpful to them because then they've got more energy to get going earlier and to keep going later into the season before they have to, to wind things down. So having a variety of uh, plant species that are early bloomers, mid-season bloomers, and late bloomers, even again, if you don't have much room, ha- have a few of each at least. And then if your neighbors and their neighbors, if, if everybody does a little bit, then you start to develop this corridor for your pollinator, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And of course, big one, native pollinator plants versus non-native pollinators. Now, I'm not saying non-native plants are totally evil and, oh, my God, because everybody's got vegetable garden plants and things, too. Um, those are those are helpful to a lot of our um, our pollinators for short-term food supplies or kind of like instant gratification things. And, of course, they help pollinate your vegetable crops so that you've got more veggies come summer. But ideally, the more native plants you have, the better. And multiple reasons for this. Um, Native wild pollinators are generally more efficient and do more pollinating than the imports or the foreigns like the honeybees and the non-natives. So they can can get to more plants. They are more efficient. Uh, They can can produce more um, pollinated plants in a shorter period of time. So they're just better at it. They're more suited for these conditions, right? Um, many of the non-natives have much shorter blooming periods and produce less nectar or, or pollen. And so they're, they don't provide as much food for our native uh, pollinators either. So it's kind of like, 
you know, throwing them a little bit of sugar, but then it's all gone, right? So you want something that's got a longer, a longer stay period. Um, some of our native plant pollinator relationships are also hyper specific. So it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes you'll have a pollinator that only can survive with one particular plant and you take one or the other out and the other disappears. So um, you don't want to ruin that delicate balance either. Um, also, non-native diseases can be brought in. Um, this is actually what's, the, the honeybees aren't native, but they're, they've been, because they've been brought all kind of all over the world, they're actually experiencing a lot of fungal diseases and mites and all these different pests um, that are troublesome to them. And they're also bringing them into native bee populations as well. Um, it hasn't been as big of a deal yet, but I'm thinking the more that the honeybees spread around and the more uh, intermingling where in the same habitats where the native bees are, there probably will be a lot more of this that we see. So a lot of reasons to try to plant as many native plants for pollinators as you can, as opposed to non-natives. I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Uh, not really. Like just other than, you know, this has probably been talked about a whole bunch, but just even a simple thing like going native versus, you know, getting your ornamentals uh, or whatever you kind of get typically from a um, greenhouse uh, mm -hmm. with natives, at least like don't have to water as much. Usually, I mean, if you're planting a wetland type thing and then also wanting to attract bees, then yeah, of course, there's going to be more water involved in that way. But the idea, though, is with natives that they should be uh, lower maintenance and yeah, a lot less uh, hands on with it. Yeah, Unless and you it, want it enables you to work bit, with but. your. Um, it enables you to work with your existing landscape. So if you've already got a shady area, there's a lot of natives for that. If you've got an already wet area, there's a lot of natives for that. You don't have to hunt around trying to find the one magical plant that might thrive in that particular condition, right? So, and we have lots of pretty. Uh, pollinator plants, lots of color, lots of flowers, lots of different textures and everything. So you can make your landscape just as beautiful as if you went and got a whole bunch of semi-tropical annuals or something from your uh, from your greenhouse center. And they'll be more likely to have been grown in the area, so they'll have better survivability um, than stuff that's brought in from BC or Ontario usually. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, it's also important to be aware of your different needs too. Like as much as we want to say, oh, it's all about the pollinators and whatever. Well, you've also got to be sensible. So think about yourself. Are you a farmer producing certain crops? Because you want to have pollinators that will be able to handle those crops as well. Are you wanting to attract a particular pollinator maybe you're somebody that just is totally in love with butterflies so you want your yard full of butterflies well then do your research and make sure you're getting native plants that are host species for the butterflies versus for bees or something right like um try to get some of the the, the plants that will tie into what your needs and wants are as well um maybe Again, we were talking about the, the wetland, woodland, or prairie, uh, you know, all those different landscapes. Instead of trying to really change your landscape to fit what you're thinking of, go with the flow of what it's giving you. If, you're, if you've got a 
yard that's constantly wet, why not turn into a wetland area? Or if you've got a place that's constantly shady, why not have a shade garden? There's nothing wrong with that. And there's lots of plants available for that. And you'll still attract uh, quite a few pollinators. Again, it's just as long as you have that diversity there, there's so many different ecosystems with so many different um, species, they'll be just fine. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. Oh, this is a, a kind of a given, but it's funny how people don't think of the ramifications of this. Refrain from spraying chemicals, um, your herbicides, your pesticides, and, it, and even not just yourself, but if your neighbors are doing it, it's going to have a drastic effect on the pollinators in your area as well. Um, they're finding that bees in particular are very sensitive to chemicals and they're indicator species of what's to come. So if your bee population starts to drop, you better be looking at why, because that means they generally are, are telling you something bigger is coming really quick here if we don't do something about it. And whether it's, again, a uh, nature-brought thing, like some, some natural pest that's got out of control or something, or whether it's, again, the pesticides or whatever, um, you need to be aware of the causes so that you can deal with the problem. Um, because even, even the bees that even with honeybees, the ones that survive, um, quite often they've, they've gravitated to, um, things like antifreeze in times where other nectar supplies are in short supply. And although they can manage to bring them back to the hive and everything, well, over time, of course, the antifreeze is going to kill them, but because it's sweet and sugary, they still collect it, right? Um, so you just got to be really aware of what kinds of things you're leaving out, what kinds of things you're applying to your landscape, because it all can have effect on your pollinators. And in a few years, if you're wondering, geez, why am I getting no apples on my apple tree? Well, maybe what you did two years or th three years before had a, had a massive effect on your pollinators, right? Mm-hmm. And like, that's the big thing is that like a lot of pollinators, um, are keystone species. Like they are kind of. Like you were saying, like they're good indicators at, uh, you know, if something's wrong, like if they're all dying out, because, yeah, you know, there's some chemical, you know, herbicide, pesticide uh, stuff going on uh, and it's affecting their populations, you know, OK, well, this is it's going to trickle down uh, to every other species, <clears throat> excuse me, to every other species. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you don't, if the, you know, certain bees, for example, you know, didn't pollinate a certain uh, berry, a current, a huckleberry, something, uh, then yeah, you know, berries aren't as plentiful and then all the species that eat berries, uh, they don't get as much food. So maybe those populations go down and then, yeah, again, it just keeps trickling down until yeah. it gets to us. <laughs> yeah. And then, and yeah, and that's something too. Usually by the time it gets to us and we're noticing, it's already either too late or well on its way out. So you want to be a lot more intuitive than that. So um right that's something uh i wanted to get into like not necessarily every single species out there in alberta that's a native because there's a gazillion but to touch on a kind of a few examples maybe from each uh type i guess and you guys can help me out with this because i just scribbled down a few examples really quickly but uh so i was talking about the extending your season so what are some early pollinator plants that you guys can think of 
that are would be really helpful first thing sometimes even when the snow's still on the ground that these poor little guys can have to eat <laughs> um i would say uh a can of buffalo berry would be one for a shrub um and then um i don't know for four probably i always think prairie crocus because that's always a <laughs> good yeah, indicator that uh, spring is coming yeah. Well, and, and I uh, had lots of people sending pictures and stuff like, oh, they're still pretty. They're so like they're little, but they're so pretty and cute and everything. And yeah, they're usually they can pop up when the snow's still on the ground. So, yeah. Dandelion. That's not native, though. <laughs> but it does uh, bring me to, you know, uh, introduce close enough, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at, at least it's a, an interim food source. And it, if you refrain from mowing your lawn right away, Sometimes those dandelions can be the make or break it for some of these species to get through until the other ones are going for sure. So um, even though they're non-native, they're they're not as bad as everybody makes them out to be. So, but um, well, willows. People like their immaculate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're golf courses, you know. Um, but willows are a great one. People underestimate them because they're like, oh, they're, they're some shrub thing or whatever. But the the pussy willow catkins, uh, the males produce quite a lot of pollen, and they're very early. Um, these nice warm days that we've been having lately, even if it's cold in between, I've been seeing uh, sweat bees and little flies and moths and all kinds of things just plastered all over. Uh, e- even different species right beside each other sharing the same pussy willow because they're so desperate to get some food. Uh, so they're great. Um, the violets will be coming soon, and especially some of those ones like the Canada violet that produce bigger flowers comparatively to some of the other ones. Um, they can be food sources for some of these guys early on as well. Um, how about mid-season? Ones that you know can flower for quite a long time, have quite a long flowering period, I guess. Uh, an enemy, I think. Canon. Yeah, Canada an enemy, I think would be one. Um. Uh, Bunch berries, those are pretty good. Um, what else? Flax, I think. Flowers for a pretty long time, if I remember correctly. Could be totally off on that one. <laughs> um, I was thinking of one of your one of your favorite ones, giant hyssop, because it. Oh yeah, yeah. It takes a while to get going, but once it's going, it's like everywhere. And, and it goes, yeah, it goes quite late into the fall. Yeah, I remember it, I had that in my yard and it just goes forever and the bees like them. Yeah. It's also one of the ones that um, even uh, hummingbirds like because it's kind of a tower uh, type plant. Well, it's got those it's got um, the, uh, tubular little, little yeah, like trumpet, flowers. whatever. Yeah. And that's what the hummingbirds like. So, yeah. And uh, wild bergamot's another one as well because mm. it's got, once it gets, it's, Actually, a lot of the members of the mint family, because uh, once they get going, they have a profusion of flowers and they spread all over the place and they go, they've got, they're fr- very frost hardy, so they'll go right till freeze up sort of thing. Um, all right. And then ones that are late bloomers. So when you're at the end of the season and there's not much else there and your little guys are looking for some sort of food or something, take back to the nest for winter. Uh, what are some examples there? Uh, really, most asters, I think. Yes. Like they're um, and the goldenrods. Goldenrods, yeah. Yeah, goldenrods uh. and the simps or whatever. Um, 
and then this is something interesting too. So um, although there's overlap, general things can be said about some of our pollinators. So um, quite often brightly colored, the reds, the pinks, the bright purples, that kind of thing, uh, hummingbirds may find those colors attractive. And then there's other colors that different pollinators find attractive. Bees, they like the blues, purples. They can even see into the ultraviolet, the UV spectrum. Um, so they're attracted to those. And butterflies are quite often attracted to the, the yellows and oranges. And uh, even though they might seem a little more inconspicuous, they're just as important, the whites, because a lot of the uh, beneficial predatory insects and the uh, the moths and the flies go to the whites quite often. Um, so what are some white natives that you guys can think of? Um, common yarrow? Yeah, actually yarrow is one on my list too. It's a good one for beneficials because it's got tiny little flowers and they mm -hmm. it's easier for them. Uh, I was thinking a lot of the berry bushes too, like Saskatoons and stuff. They, right. they love that. Um, how about the yellow orange? Uh, oh, uh, I'm thinking the Latin. I can't. <laughs> I know. I'm uh, sometimes translating in my head. It's like, uh, um, uh, fall, is it false hairy aster? What's hetero, uh, heterotheca? Uh, oh, heady V. Uh, that's the golden. Isn't that golden aster or something? Yeah, hairy false. Gold, hairy gold. Some, some of these mouthfuls. No wonder we go with the Latin name with those. Hey. Um, yeah, and Arnica would be another one. Any of that, like, because there's a few different species of Arnica. Um, and even the wood lily, like it's a it's a bright orange. And mm -hmm. I believe I believe the butterflies and the hummingbirds like it. Well, and bees too. I think everybody likes that one. It's just so cool. Um yeah, and speaking of the hummingbirds and butterflies, uh red and pinks. What red and pink um, columbine even though you can get basically any kind of color of columbine it seems yeah well and columbines <laughs> are, are set ones. yeah columbines are also set up for hummingbirds because they've got again that that bell kind of shape flower mm -hmm. that the, the hummingbirds little beaks and tongues can get into um fireweed's an underrated one too it's got those tall spires of flowers and hummingbirds and uh butterflies love those as well they produce a lot of nectar so they're mm -hmm. um Kind of a one-stop shop instead of wasting your time going to a whole bunch of tiny little flowers you can get quite a bit at, at one um and one that i guess people don't think about as often because there's only two little flowers on each um each stem kind of thing but the bracted honeysuckle it's got those bright flowers as well oh yeah so um how about the blue purple spectrum uh, Purple hip loose drive. What's it called? Tall Luxpa. I don't know. I, do do the bees like them? I think they do. Oh, there is there. Yeah, there are native larkspurs. Right. Uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, lupinus. No, no, not the. Um, yeah, lup lupins, lupine, lupins. Lupine. Yeah, yeah, lupins. Um, the native ones, of course, because. The native ones are usually smaller and almost always blue purple, whereas you can get the the garden varieties that are all kinds of colors, and they they get to be quite large. Um, uh, Meadow blazing stars, another one, the liatris that I thought of, and penstemons, lots of different penstemons. So there's actually quite a lot in the 
blue purple. Um, the other thing that's interesting is not all of the pollinators go for color. Some are it's smell, and some of them it might be a nice perfumey or sweet type of scent, like uh, bees and butterflies during the day quite often gravitate to smells that we would probably find attractive too. Things that smell like dessert, right? Nice and sweet and sappy and syrupy and that kind of thing. Whereas at night, a lot of times the, like we don't have very many night pollinators as far as I know, but any of the plants that bloom at night, the only one I could think of is the evening primrose. It'll, it'll open at night. I don't know if you can think of any other night blooming plants, but, um, Quite often those plants have no scent or they stink like death because they're attracting moths and flies. So um, I know one of the, what's that tropical one they've got at Mutart Gardens? Oh, um, the, yeah, the one that the, smells like death. <laughs> yeah, and, and they've even named, like, they gave it a name, a specific name, like a, a human name, like, is it pu- Putrilla or put- something? Anyway, because it just, it stinks like rotting meat, but when it flowers, it's ginormous and it's, it's pollinated by uh, flies, I think. So, but yeah, even in Alberta, we do have a few uh, nighttime pollinators and some things like the evening primrose, which either, like I say, they don't smell at all, or there's some things. I'm guessing, so that skunk cabbage, I'm guessing that must be pollinated by flies because it, it really stinks. (laughs) Well, so, with a name like skunk cabbage. Yeah. But anyway, um, some ones that for, that are heavily scented for the day, though, for the bees and butterflies. Uh, wolf willow. Holy wow. It's got a really strong, fragrant scent. Lots of yellow flowers. And uh, for some people, if you walk into a little grove of wolf willow, it can be overpowering, actually. Um, and some of the oxytropus, they've got a a scent to them as well, which attracts the bees and butterflies. Um, yeah, so there's quite a few there. And then we get into the, I guess, the, the types of habitat that they grow in. So uh, how about some wetland plants that are great for pollinators? Uh, mint? Yes, any the of the one... mint family. Uh, the obedient plant is one of my favorites, and that's another good one. Um, got those purpley pink kind of spires of flowers um how about for dry land um prickly pear yeah so that we got we've actually got a few a few different species of cacti in alberta there's actually a pocket is it north east of edmonton or something where there's some ball cactus and, and different things and then down of course south uh, when you get to Drumheller and farther, you've got your um, prickly pear and your brittle cactus and a few different kinds there. Um, but they've got really nice, pretty flowers uh, on them. And then uh, Scarlet Globemow was another one I thought of because it's, well, it's just a really nice bright orange flower and they definitely like it dry. <laughs> <laughs> so... um up here, this happens more often. How about our shadies? Because we have lots of woodlands and stuff up here. Uh, bunchberry would be one. Oh, and I'm blanking on that other one that we'd always grow and it would never last long, but it always like the shade. 
uh, Palmatis, I think, or totally blanking on what the name is. Anyways, go on. One of the, one of the, I don't <laughs> Just think it out loud. Um, okay. Um, I was thinking wild sarsaparilla is another one. And what's funny is mm. usually you see those umbrella leaves, but when you're not paying attention very quickly, you'll see the second little stem come up with the flowers and then it becomes berries, right? Um, and of course the violets, there's the canned violet, but there's other ones as well. Um, actually the bog violets, one that's, that would do well in the wet as well. Um, how about, oh, and of course sunshine, there's lots of sunshiny plants, but name some that like really like full sun um sink foils yeah it's <laughs> like the potentilla sink foil thing um yeah don't know there's a bunch <laughs> oh yeah a lot of them um and then for the for the heights so some of the uh the shorter plants um what define short well, I'm, it doesn't have to be like ground hugging, ground cover, what? but just okay. you know, under. So I was just thinking like uh, under a foot or something. Yeah, but. like <laughs> I'm thinking like under a foot tall kind of thing, under twelve inches sort of thing. Like I was thinking of purple prairie clover or blanket flower, things okay. like that that yeah. are on the smaller side, right? Because um, that height attracts a certain degree of pollinators, and then the opposite to that is, all right, now name some tall ones. Um. Hyssop. <laughs> yeah, well, it does. It gets. It has to be. It can be like what close to three feet tall. I think that one. Um, I was even thinking the native sunflowers. I mean, they can get fairly tall, and also the uh, again the shrubs like choke cherry and stuff get to be quite tall comparatively, and they're just loaded with flowers, right? So, mm-hmm. um, all it, all it takes is a little bit of research and thought, and you can very quickly get a whole variety of of pollinator plants. And then it's just a matter of piecing together what your area can support, what you're wanting to attract, and what's good for your your area and your what you've got going on. I mean, if if you want something to come in and pollinate your your garden plants, your vegetable plants, well then even in that case, you can still have some pollinator plants in to help draw these these pollinators in to help with your garden plants, right? Mm-hmm. So um, and definitely learn from observation. So, like I said before, it's not a short-term project. Like initially, you may you may be plotting and planning all winter and think, okay, I think I got it now. You go to plant, and then after a season, uh, go back and look at things. Look at uh, things on a yearly, a monthly, and a weekly kind of schedule to see how things are coming along, what tweaks you need to make. Um, if things are becoming successful or not and what you have to change. Also look at nearby wild areas for comparisons because you may find, okay, well, if something already generally likes to live in this type of area, maybe I should try to mimic that a little bit and that might set you up for succeeding a little better. Um, You might also want to study areas adjacent to your own yard, like see maybe what your neighbors are doing because if you work communitively all together, um, then you can create a bigger habitat overall for some of these beneficial pollinators, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and yeah, again, just realize that there's a, a lot of different variables. It's not as simple as just going plunk, putting a plant in and saying, all right, where's the bee? Um, it's a, a big undertaking, but also it doesn't have to be that complicated. Break it down into little steps. 
you know, you can always stagger plant, plant a few things one year, see how it goes, plant a few things um, in successive years. And if something's not working, you can pull it out, you can put something else in, you can add some uh, pollinator habitat, like other items, which we'll get into in the other episodes, like maybe there's some little houses or nesting areas or water sources or all these kind of things. But as you go along and you keep putting more of these things in, it's only going to get better because it's going to be more conducive to the pollinators moving in, right? <laughs> so, and uh, have fun, I think, you know? Like, <laughs> I think, well, because a lot of, yes, we're doing this for the good of the, the our, our local areas and then for the greater good of the planet or, or whatever, right? But at the same time, um, you can use this as a, as a little scientific learning project for your kids. You can use it as a photography back platform. Like I see people taking really awesome close-ups of little pollinator insects on these flowers. And um, a lot of times they're so small, you wouldn't even notice them if you're just walking along a trail, but somebody catching something and just getting that blown up picture and suddenly it becomes, oh, so real. Um, and kind of being proud of the fact that if you if you build one of these habitats, then suddenly you've got um, this whole ecosystem going on that you helped create, right? And you can sit there going, oh, wow, like now I see the birds coming in and then there's the insects here and my plants are doing this and now this is happening. It's this whole uh, circular effect, right? So yeah, um, I don't know if you got anything to add, either of you guys. Uh, no, I mean, I think you summed it up nicely. Just, yeah, enjoy doing these things that, you know, we're providing knowledge, information uh, to you guys listening. And yeah, we just hope that, you know, you get something out of it and hopefully you can apply it to your gardens if we have them already. Uh, just, you know, just these little things that can uh, have pretty big impacts over time and um, or just starting, you know, from scratch and figuring out what you want to do if you want to focus more on pollinators or just having just a native landscape for, you know, all these other reasons that we've talked about in previous episodes and yeah, just got to be patient with it. Take your time, you know, ask experts, you know, if you're struggling with, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to plant and how to do it exactly. Like, you know, yeah, try to figure out talking with the right people that know their stuff. Hopefully that'll be us. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, just even other people that, you know, just, you know, get things done. <laughs> get things done. Get out there. Yeah. Get out there. Enjoy, enjoy nature, enjoy creating these things, um, seeing how they evolve and uh, have fun with it. And definitely stay tuned for our, our next uh, part two of the pollinator podcast series, uh, which we'll be probably doing in a, in a few weeks. And that will be on the pollinators themselves. So we'll be looking more at the, the native species of bees and the butterflies and the uh, beetles and all that stuff. So stay tuned. 